0: So, let's jump in. Romans chapter 3, as you saw, we have 20 verses, and it is a lot, okay? There is a lot there. And so, I'm, I like tend to try to be at or like 35 minutes, probably not today, sorry guys. But it's, okay. it's going to be good. This is a great passage. And so, um, when we open our passage, uh, we come into an argument that the Apostle Paul is having, okay? Now, the funny thing is the Apostle Paul is actually having this argument with himself, right? And so I picture, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm trying to fall asleep at night. I get into these hypothetical arguments where I always win. You ever do that, right? Like I've had some mic drop moments at 11 p.m. that beat everything, right? You're like thinking what the person might say to you and how you're going to respond. That's what Paul is doing here, but it's a little bit more serious than that. He's using a technique, a rhetorical device called a diatribe. And this is where he anticipates the objections that people are going to come at him with from what he just said, and he answers those objections before anyone can even raise them. And if you were here last last week, you heard, I think it was in here, it was Pastor Joe teaching on the fact that Paul said there is now no excuse for anyone, right? Religious or irreligious, there is no excuse. And what he basically says is, a Jew who doesn't follow the law, is no different than a Gentile. So he makes this bold claim that religion can't save you. God shows no partiality. And so he anticipates that people are going to be responding to this. Jewish Christians are going to be responding to this. And their their response is going to go something like this. Paul, you keep saying that we're sinners. And you're lumping us in with the Gentiles. But you can't possibly think that we're the same as them, can you? God chose us to be his people. And so Paul is going to thoroughly respond to their arguments. And so that's what we have here in these first verses is Paul is going to get the objection from this imaginary Jewish man that he pictures standing in front of him. And he's going to respond to each objection. And so let's look at it. Let's work through them. We're just going to take each passage, each verse today, verse by verse, and walk through it. And so here's the first objection and, and, and let, me, let me also say before this, this isn't going to be quoted exactly from Scripture. Um, that the uh, or commentators, if you read on this passage, point out that these eight verses here at the beginning, if you, you heard, heard them read, are challenging, some of the most challenging that there are in the entire book. So what I've done is I've taken a big stack of commentaries and tried to use people smarter than me to try to really get at what Paul is saying here, okay? So this is going to be kind of my paraphrase using all the different information we have and scholarly thought and stuff of the argument that is being made at Paul and the argument that he's kind of giving back. And you can follow along in Scripture and kind of check me to make sure I'm not getting too far off here, okay? So here's the first objection. Verse 1. Okay, Paul, so are you saying that there's no advantage to being a Jew? Okay. So you say, if we don't follow the law, we're the same as the Gentiles. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? And here's Paul's response. No, I'm not saying that. There are great benefits. First of all, you have God's word, and there is great value in that. Okay. So later in the, in the letter, Paul's going to give a lot more benefits of them being being a jew but here he says the first one i need to name is you have the word of god right in the esv it's the oracles you have the word of god you have the scriptures you have grown up your whole life being taught the bible okay the word of god that your parents have taught you this and jesus says it all points to him so you grew up hearing these stories each of which point us to jesus that is an advantage and I couldn't help but think, if we ask Paul, Paul, is there an advantage to being a Christian in 2022 in America? I feel like this is probably going to be his answer, right? You're holding it, okay? You're, you're holding the advantage. It's in your phone. You have the Bible in hundreds of different translations of your language. That's amazing, right? And so I, that's something that if you've always grown up with Bibles on your shelf collecting dust, you can think, oh, yeah, whatever. That's a big deal, right? That's an advantage. And so Paul says here, that is an advantage. You have the scriptures. Well, then the objector's going to come back, and he's going to say something like this. But if God's word was supposed to lead us to Jesus, hasn't it failed? Because many Jews haven't believed the gospel. Doesn't this mean that God wasn't faithful to his promise to the Jews? Well, then Paul's going to come back, and he's going to say, absolutely not. Our sin doesn't make God unfaithful. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. God has kept his promise to bring salvation, even though many of the Jews haven't believed. And so when we are unfaithful, that doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. When we are unfaithful, God remains faithful because that's who he is. He can't do anything else. God remains faithful. Well, then the objector comes back. Verse 5, okay. But if our sin actually serves a good purpose because it helps people to see the righteousness of God, then how is it fair that we get punished for it? That's a good question, right? Because God is in the business of turning evil to good. If you were here this summer, remember the story of Joseph? That was like the whole story, wasn't it? He turns evil to good. At the end, Joseph's able to look at his brothers and say, you meant this for evil, but what? God meant it for good. So God takes evil, turns it for good. And the question here is, if God turns evil to good, is the person who committed the evil still responsible? And what's Paul's answer? Yes, right? Absolutely. Here's what he says. God is just. This is what makes him qualified to judge the sins of the world. And all sin must be punished. Here's an analogy Just to to help you really get this one, and this—let me just preface this because this is on video, and I'm going to look back at this in a year and say that was a stupid analogy. I promise you, it is not going to age well. Okay, it's not going to age well. But currently, as I'm saying this, October 2nd, 2022, it is great to be a Tennessee ball, right? Great to be a Tennessee ball. Like it is—we we we are riding high, 4-0, top 10, coming off a bye week, going to Baton Rouge. We're feeling good. And it seems, again, camera, I'm, I, this will not age well. It seems like we found our coach, right? Like, it seems like we got something good in Josh Heupel. It seems like, like, like he knows what he's doing. It seems like we're on the right track. The offense looks great. It's awesome. It seems like that. Let's just assume that, that, that we're there, okay? We're on the way to national championships now. Well, <laughs> it took a lot of bad to get here didn't it? If you're a Tennessee Vol fan, it took a lot of bad to get here. Everything since 2007, basically, has been bad. It took Lane Kiffin abandoning us. It took Derek Dooley and Butch Jones being incompetent. And then Jeremy Pruitt being incompetent and getting fired for cheating. So he can't even cheat well because he gets fired for cheating while losing. But here's what I want you to think about. Okay, Dumb analogy, but here's what I want you to think about. Imagine our old coaches all came out with a with a newspaper ad in the Knoxville News Sentinel. And it said this, you're welcome. You're welcome, right? You're sitting good now. You have Josh Heupel, you have an amazing offense. You're ranked in the top 10 in the nation. You're welcome. It was because of our incompetence that you're finally where you are. Are they off the hook? No, right? No, God is sovereign, but Jeremy Pruitt is still responsible, right? He is responsible. And so you see the point, okay? You see the point. Just because it turns out for good doesn't make the sin okay, right? It doesn't make the sin okay. We are still responsible for our sin, even though God is going to work it all together for good, okay? Well, then the objector comes back one more time. He says, well, then... If me sinning makes God's glory shine brighter, shouldn't I sin more so his glory can be more clear can be seen more clearly? Aren't I doing him a service when I sin? So Paul says, basically, this is what some people accuse us of saying, and he's gonna tackle this again in chapter six in more depth. But I love his response to the people saying that he says this. He doesn't even really address it, he thinks it's too dumb to even address, and all he says is, you deserve to be condemned right? You deserve to be condemned. That's verse 8, okay? So that's the imaginary argument. You're with me. This is how it starts out, and now Paul is going to just, he's, going, he's starting to really get going, okay? And so all these, all these questions, all these objections have to do with sin and people being sinful, and he's getting going now, and he's going to show everyone that no one is excused from sin, right? The fall affects us all, It affects every single one of us. And he's going to do this pivot here in verse 9 where he's going to wrap the whole thing up. And really what he's wrapping up is everything from chapter 1, verse 18 on. Okay, He's going to wrap it up with a question. Here's what he says, verse 9. After all that stuff that I answered, all these objections, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he answers, no, not at all. So remember, he began the chapter with a similar question saying, do Jews have any advantage? And he said, yeah, you've been given God's word. But the question here is, is anyone free from the consequences of sin? And the answer is an emphatic no. And now he really starts to get going. And what he's going to do, you'll see in your Bibles, there's just this string of, of sentences right in a row. And what that is, is Paul is taking seven lines from the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms, also one from Ecclesiastes, one from Isaiah, and he's stringing them all together as evidence for the fact that we have all been affected by the fall. So he's going to list list seven effects of sin, and spoiler alert, they are all bad, right? They are all bad. So we're going to work through this verse by verse. Be helpful if you just follow along with me in your Bible. So let's start in verse 10. Paul says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. None is good, okay? None is good, plainly, none is good. And so this gives you a clear picture right off the bat what sin has done. Because remember, human beings were not created like this, right? It didn't start with the fall. We were created in the image of God to rule and to reign and to represent God. And this is still true. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator. We are made in his image. But none is untouched by sin. Here's a great, I love this definition for what sin is. We, say, we throw that word around a lot, but I think this is awesome. This is from Cornelius Plantinga. He defines sin as the vandalism of shalom. Isn't that good? The vandalism of shalom. So what's shalom? Shalom is what Adam and Eve experience in the first two chapters of the Bible. Flourishing. Universal flourishing. Peace. Peace with each other. right? Peace with God. Peace with creation. Peace with the animals. Peace with everything. Shalom is peace. It's flourishing. That's what they experience, right? It's it's the way that things should be. But shalom has been vandalized hasn't it? Because that's not, that's not true of us anymore. Shalom has been, va- been vandalized. When Adam and Eve sinned, it messed up everything. Their relationship with God, their relationship with each other. I mean, shortly after, one of their sons is going to murder their other son, right? And so they go from shalom, peace, to murdering each other. They're, they're, just, it disturbs all of creation. That's what Paul's going to say in Romans 8. The creation now groans with the effects of sin. Shalom has been thoroughly vandalized. And then if you read the Old Testament, it's just this playing out over and over and over and over again, right? Sin enters the world, and then you see these people, and they're all bad, aren't they? They're all bad. Sometimes you read a story, and you're like, is this one good? No, no, not good, right? You read Moses' story, is this one good? No, no. David, no, no. They're all bad, right? Shalom has been thoroughly vandalized. affected them, it also affects us. How does it do that? Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Paul says, no one understands. Sin warps our minds. It's not just wrong. Sin makes us stupid. Okay? Sin is not just wrong. It's dumb. And how does this play out in our lives? Verse 11. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Our stupidity shows up in this lie that has reverberated from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve believed it. Everyone in the Old Testament believed it. We believe it. Every mom believes it. Dad believes it. Business professional believes it. Everyone believes it. And the lie is this. I think my way is probably better than God's. I'm the one who knows what's best for me. That's the lie. That's the lie that we're told every single day. And so instead of running God's way, we run our own way. Instead of bending the knee to the king of the universe, we give in to the siren call of the things of this world. We run to them. And it's folly, right? It's it's folly. Cornelius Plantinga puts this so good. Here's what he says. He says, God is our final good, our maker, and savior, the one in whom alone our restless hearts come to rest. To rebel against God is to saw off the branch that supports us. To flee from God to some far country and search for fulfillment there is to only find black market substitutes. Instead of joy, the buzz in your temples from four or five martinis. Instead of self-giving love, sex with strangers. Instead of a parent's unconditional enthusiasm for you as a person, only the professional support of a fashionable therapist who will indeed pump up your ego whenever it loses pressure, but only while his meter is running. When we rebel against God, we cut ourselves off from the one who truly gives life. It's like drinking up salt water, thinking that's going to satisfy you, but you only become more thirsty. We know this, right? We know that we've heard this, but we continue to believe the lie don't we? We continue to believe I'm the one who knows what is best, not God. So no one understands. No one understands. And then Paul drops this bomb at the end of verse 12. No one does good, (laughs) not even one. And this is where we may interject and say, okay, no one, yeah, I get the the other thing, but no one does good. Ah, I mean, there's always evidence of good, right? Like if you watch the evening news, it's 28 minutes of awful, and then they always end with an encouraging story, right? Like 28 minutes of awful, and then look at this guy who adopted a bunch of cats, you know? Like that's always how it ends. It's like we want to send you off like knowing the world is actually okay, right? That's how we always do it. They're in there, absolutely. There are examples of good in the world from Christians, from non-Christians, people who do good. Here's what we need to say. It's important to recognize two things. First of all, For something to be truly good, it must be good in both the deed itself and the motivation that led to the good deed. You see that? Here's one of my favorite stories. This is from Spurgeon, obviously, and he used this in a sermon. This is a sermon illustration, I thought. It just really has stayed with me. So he tells this story of a king in a far-off country who is beloved by his servants, And one day, the king is sitting on his throne, and a man, a farmer, comes in, pulling in a four-foot carrot, okay, a four-foot-long carrot. And he brings it in, and he puts it down in front of the king, and he says, King, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown. I've been growing carrots my whole life. My my dad did, my grandpa, my great-grandpa. This is the largest carrot I've ever seen. And so when I grew it, I knew this is a carrot fit for a king. And the king said, Wow. Wow. Thank, thank you. This is amazing. And so gives him, the, gives him the carrot, and the king says, hey, where do you live? Where's your farm? Guy tells him, he says, well, actually, I own all the land around your farm, so it's yours now, all yours. And in that moment, the man's farm quadrupled in size. Outstanding, right? Good day for this guy. Well, there was this other guy who was a rich man who just happened to be near the king, and he heard this, and he thought, he got smart. He said, well, If the king is willing to do that for that stupid gift, a carrot, what will he do for a real gift? So the next day, this man brings in this beautiful black stallion and brings it up in front of the king, and he says, king, a gift for you, my best horse. And the king said, thank you. Have a good day. And took the horse and took it away and left the man. And the man got got mad. He said, "What, what is it? Like, yesterday, the guy gave you a carrot, and you give him land, and I bring you my best horse, and I get nothing. And here's what the king said. Yesterday, the carrot farmer gave the carrot to me. You're giving this horse to yourself. You see? You're giving this horse to yourself. Good deed. Absolutely. Great. He gave away his horse. That's so nice. Wrong motivation. Okay? So for something to be good, it can't just be a good deed. It has to be done with the right motivation. And this, I mean, honestly, I experience this, just just honestly, I experience this every single time I preach. Every single time I preach. Because I think, I think what I'm doing up here is a good thing, right? Like, I think this is a good thing. I think preparing for the sermon is a good thing. I think it's a good way to spend my week. And I can honestly say that when I do it, I'm doing it out of love for God. I'm doing it out of a calling that I feel like he's put on my life, and I'm doing it out of love for you. And I want you to think I'm smart, right? Like, I want you to like me. I want you to think the sermon's good, right? Like, every single time, there's always this thing where I think it's genuine, it's good. Like, it really, like, I'm doing this out of a genuine heart. And also, because I'm a sinful human being, it's impossible to step up here and not worry. How do they like that? Did they laugh at that? Did they laugh too much at that? What, right? Like, we're always it's, it's impossible. And you probably see that in your job, right? You genuinely want to do it. You genuinely want to do it for the Lord. You genuinely want to do it for his glory. And, right, fill in the blank. You want to maybe make much of yourself. We all, even in our best deeds, often struggle to do them with the right motivation. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing we need to realize. In light of our ultimate sin, which is rejection of God and rebellion against him, even our good deeds aren't that good. So J.D. Greer relates it to a man going to a hotel, going up to the room to have an affair. And on the way to have an affair, he tips the bellhop generously. That's a good deed, right? It's a good deed. Maybe he genuinely loves that bellhop. It's done out of genuine love. But in the context of what he's going to do, it doesn't seem that good, does it? (laughs) In the context of what he's there to do, this evil act that he's there to do, it doesn't seem that good. And so the prophet Isaiah says that because of our sin, even the most righteous acts we do are just filthy rags. And if you're still not convinced, Paul's gonna keep going, and he's gonna move into some examples of sin that can clearly be seen in our everyday lives. So look at verse 13 and 14. He says this, Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, asps, snakes, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So if you're not convinced that we're sinful, look at our words, right? If you're not convinced we're sinful as a world, download Twitter. You'll find out in about three seconds, right? But the key here is that the sin just isn't out there, it's in here. And if you wanna see that, think about the words that you've used this week. Okay. I mean, if, I, if, if somehow we could get a transcript of everything that you've said this week and put it online, would that be embarrassing? Yeah, it would be for me. Who did you hurt, right? If that got out, who would you hurt? Who would you have slandered? Who were what that you said was hateful? How much of it was gossip? How much was lies or half-truths? You see, our words are evidence of what's going on in our soul. If you wanna know how healthy your soul is, think back on your words. You've probably seen that in your life, right? In unhealthy periods, your words change. Look back at your words. Your words show, right? They show because they come out of your heart. They show the condition of your heart. And so if you want to know how your soul is, maybe you ask, how did I use my words today? Paul's not done. He moves into another point closely related that shows our sinfulness. Verse 15, he says this, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, in the way of peace they have not known. Maybe hear this one and say, finally, I'm good. I've never murdered anyone, right? Like, I mean, finally, one, that I check? This is good. Okay, great. And let's celebrate that. That's good, right? That's an awesome thing. But here's the real question. What do you do when people get things that you want? What do you do when you have a goal or you have something that you desire and someone gets in the way? How do you respond? That's the question. Because for some people, the effects of sin, they murder in that instance, right? But even those of us who don't, who aren't tempted to murder someone, we have to ask, how do we respond in those situations? And for me, it's often anger, right? If I'm angry, it's typically because someone else got something that I wanted. So how do you respond when someone else gets the promotion? How do you respond when someone else gets the relationship? How do you respond when someone else gets the credit? How do you respond when someone else's kid gets celebrated? Often our response is anger, right? Because we're not getting what we want. We're called to bless others, but in those situations we only curse them. It's really hard to bless someone who gets something that you want, isn't it? That's a challenge. It's because sin has made us selfish. Sin makes us all about us. In the 4th century, I'm going to teach you some Latin here, okay? In the 4th century, Augustine used a Latin term to describe what sin does to us. It's incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se. You know what it means? Curved in on self. Curved in on self. And that picture, that's from a New Yorker magazine and back in 2015, That's it, isn't it? Curved in on, that's what that looks like, to be curved in on oneself. That's what sin does to us. We're all about us. We're out to get mine. We're looking out for number one. And this leads to anger when we don't get what we want. Think about this. How many of your fights within your family are because of this? Probably most, if not all, right? You're coming home from a long day of work, You're tired, you just want to sit on the couch and watch TV, have some food, and your kids get in the way. And what do you do? You snap, (laughs) because you're not getting what you want, right? Or you're just trying to get everyone ready for church and do a good thing and get everyone to church on time, and they're not cooperating. What do you do? You snap, (laughs) because people are getting in the way of what you want. We're incurvatus in se, curved in on oneself. We're always about us. We're always about us. And Paul's not done. Here's verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God before their eyes. That could just be a summary of the whole thing, right? We don't fear God. We don't fear God. Here's what that means, if you don't know. What does it mean that we don't fear the Lord? Here's the best definition I have. This is from Tim Keller. He says, To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and His love. It means that because of His bright holiness and magnificent love, you find Him fearfully beautiful. So, to not fear God is to find other things more beautiful than Him. It's to love other things more supremely. It's to worship something in the place of God. And let me just say, this is not just wrong. It's folly, to go back to what we were talking about earlier. It's dumb. It's stupid. Okay? Let me show you why. So this is uh, David Foster Wallace. Maybe you've heard that name. So he was a very famous author, very popular author. Um, died in 2008, unfortunately, from suicide. He had been struggled with depression for most of his life. And David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, but has written some really amazing books and just a really amazing thinker. And he gave this really famous commencement address a couple years before he died. And it's usually said to be one of the greatest commencement addresses ever given. You know, most commencements I've been to, you just, please, just shut up, right? Like, the commencement speaker is never good. But this is just amazing. You can find it on YouTube. He gave it at Kenyon College. And here's the part. This has gotten really popular. But this just, he just really wraps it up. And remember, this is coming from a guy who isn't a Christian whatsoever, but here's him talking about worship. Here's what he says. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need more, even more, ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are our default settings. You see his point? We were created to worship. We were created to worship. But because of sin, we will find other things to worship. There's no one who can say, I don't worship. Everybody worships because that's that's what we were created to do. But because of sin, we'll find that in something else. And it's folly. Why? Because it will eat us alive. Always. It will eat us alive when we worship lesser gods. So now, verses 19 and 20, Paul's going to make his closing argument. Here's his closing argument. Here's how he's going to wrap it all up. He says, you don't believe you're sinful? Well, let me hold something up for you. Let me hold up the law. Here's what he says. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so at this point, there's no response, Right? By holding up the law, Paul has held up a mirror that you have to look into and say, I fall short, right? I fall short. The law is a smoking gun proving once and for all that we are guilty. We ourselves are culpable in the vandalism of shalom. And no matter how much good we do, we cannot cover it up. One preacher related it to that piece of chicken in the Tupperware in the back of your fridge? We all have that, right, okay? That piece of, you know, that Tupperware that's in the back, it's like you're getting the condensation, and it's been back, you don't even know how long it's been back there, but at this point it's just like a science project. You're like, is it gonna disappear if I let it just stay there long enough? You know what I'm talking about, right? You think, oh, we got to save the leftovers, right? We're gonna eat that tomorrow, and then it's four months later and the chicken's still there, okay? Think of that chicken. What if you got that chicken out, put it on a plate, and said, it just needs a little barbecue sauce. Right? Little bit. That's gonna to be totally fine. No, <laughs> right? No. Thankfully, all of our college students are gone on the student retreats. So some of them be like, yeah, yeah that's fine, right? That sounds good. But no, that, that's not gonna work, right? The barbecue sauce is not enough. That's the point here, right? What the law reveals is that our heart is that piece of chicken. And all good deeds do is put a little barbecue sauce on that and make it look a little bit better. And maybe fool some people, right? But still, On the inside, we are rotten because of sin. The law is like an x-ray. It doesn't fix anything, but it reveals what's broken. That is the law. And that is our condition. That is our condition. So the way we broke up this passage, technically I'm done, okay? Like that's, that's how we end, right? Like that's the argument. Next week, Paul is going to come back and give us the answer, but I got I to tell you the answer, right? There is an answer to everything that we have talked about today. There is an answer to every single struggle with sin that we have. And so let me review. I'm just going to walk through them really quickly, and let's review where we've been, and I'll try my best to point you to the solution. First, we learn that we are unrighteous, that none is good. But remember from chapter 1, It's Jesus who gives us his righteousness. You remember that? So 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so there was this great exchange where we get, if you trust in Jesus, you get what Jesus earned on your behalf, and he took what you earned on the cross. So no one is righteous, not one, except Jesus. Except Jesus, and He has made a way for us to be righteous ourselves. Here's second we run away. We run away from God as far as we can. But Jesus came to get us. Jesus came to get us. One of my favorite stories from the Old Testament, the story of Hosea. And I use it in sermons a lot, but I haven't used it for two years, so I think I'm I'm good. I went back and checked. But if you don't know the story, Hosea is is a prophet. And he marries this woman named Gomer. And before long, Gomer is unfaithful to Hosea. She runs off and goes to be with other men. So she's with one man, another man, another man, and another man. And then finally, the last man actually sells her into slavery. That's the point it gets to. So here's this woman. She's married to Hosea. And now all of a sudden, she's actually, it seems like in the, in the story, being sold in an auction That's how far that she has fallen at this point. And I would picture that at this point, Hosea is like, dodged a bullet on that one, (laughs) right? Like, let her go. Like, that's on her, whatever. But do you remember what God tells him? Go get her back. Go get her back. So Hosea goes to get her back, and she's actually being sold into slavery, as I said. And I love picturing that scene, right? She's being sold, and it actually tells us how much she's being sold for, and it's like half the price of a typical female servant in that day. So not only is she being sold as a slave, no one even wants her. But can you picture that scene when she's being sold, but then she finds out who she's bought by, and it's Hosea, right? She's standing there. Can you imagine how ashamed she would feel? Of everything that she's done, and all of a sudden she hears someone from the back saying, I want her, and I will do anything I have to do to get her back. Even after all she's done, even though she ran away, I will do anything I have to do to get her back. What's the point of the story? It's God's love for us. That's exactly what the story says. That's, that's, that's what Hosea, that's the point of the prophet Hosea's book, is that that's what God did for us. We ran away, we went off to all the lesser gods that eat us alive. Maybe you've realized that, that the lesser gods are eating you alive. And Jesus says, I want you. I want you, and I, I will do whatever I have to do to get you back, including living the perfect life you couldn't live and dying the death that you deserve. Right? That's our story. We run away, but Jesus keeps coming after us. Here's number three. We were told that we cannot do good, that no one does good. But I've already said it. Jesus did the good we couldn't do. He came and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserve. Fourth, we mistreat others with our words, with our actions, putting ourselves always before them, not wanting what's best for them. But Jesus is the story of someone who puts others above himself always, right? Always puts others' needs above himself. That's why he's so beautiful. Walking around loving the people that no one else loves. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Fifth, we don't fear God. We don't fear God, but Jesus feared God till the end. Do you remember right before he died when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember that scene? It's crazy. Jesus is in this garden thinking about what's to come, and he's so distressed that he's sweating blood. So distressed, thinking about what's to come, that he's sweating blood. And here's what he says. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So as he kneels down, think about that. Jesus kneeling down in the garden, right? Just yelling out to his father, knowing what's about to come, knowing that he's going to take our sin on his shoulders and feel the crushing weight of our sin. And He's scared. He knows what's about to happen. This is not just any normal death. He knows what's about to happen, and he's scared, and he's distressed, and he's sweating blood, and he says, Father, if there's any other way, let's do it. But... Not my will, your will be done. That's fearing the Lord, right? That's fearing God. And Jesus did that to the end. So much so that he went to the cross. Sixth, we cannot uphold the law, but Jesus did it perfectly. We can't uphold the law, but Jesus did it perfectly. And not only that, you know what 1 John tells us? it tells us that we have an advocate in Jesus. You know what that means? Jesus, what is he doing right now? He is pleading our case. He's like a lawyer pleading our case. And on our own, I hope I mean I hope if you've got nothing else today, I hope you've seen we have no case, right? We have no case. So what does he do? He doesn't plead our case. He doesn't plead by what we do. He pleads by what he does. When we sin, he brings out the evidence of the crown of thorns he wore. He brings out the evidence of the blood that he spilled. He plays the video of him crying out, it is finished. And he advocates for us by pointing to what he has done. Isn't that amazing? He says, look at what I have done. You cannot condemn them any more. And then here's the seventh and final thing, and I'll, I'll close with this, a little real hope here. Shalom has been vandalized, right? We live in a world where shalom has been vandalized, and we face the effects of that every single day. But one day, it will be restored. That's the hope. You know that, right? One day it will be restored. still a line from Lord of the Rings. Everything sad will come untrue. That's our hope, right? Listen to this, Revelation 21, three through five. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. That's our hope. That's our hope. Look, when you are at your lowest, when you feel the effects of the sinful world, that's what we look at, right? We look to that. We look to that shore that is coming when one day everything will be made right. Everything will be made right. That relational shalom that Adam and Eve experienced will experience, 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 we'll experience that again. That relational shalom they experienced with God will experience that again. That relational shalom they experienced with creation we will experience that again again, and we will experience it for all of eternity. Amen? Isn't that awesome? That is what we look forward to. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing and just praise God, praise Jesus for what he did, because there was a chasm that we couldn't fill in, but he came and did everything that had to be done to fill that in. And so we're going to sing, and then afterwards, I'll come back up and lead us through a time in communion. So if you forgot to get your cup, now would be a good time to go out and do that. So let me pray for us. Dear Lord, I just thank you. I thank you that though this passage seems just kind of hopeless, right? we live in a world that feels like it isn't the way it's supposed to be. And all this passage tells us is that we are right. It isn't. No one is good. Not one. No one seeks you. That's our world. That's us, even in this room. But I thank you that that isn't the end of the story, that, the, that Romans doesn't end with this passage, that next week but, that next week we'll get to see what you've done for us. But even as we talked about today, thank you for not leaving us in this state, for coming to get us, even when we turned away and run to lesser gods that eat us alive. Thank you for all that you've done. Or we love you in Jesus name I pray. Amen.